Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. And we left off at the parentheses, the middle of the page, 867. Well, the plot thickens. <laughs> he explained last week that the two names of God, Hashem and Elohim, are compared to the sun and the shield because God has the ability, God's kindness, the ability to create, to give. Only God has the ability to create something from nothing. So that creative ability is an expression of God's kindness, infinite kindness. And God and His attributes are one, just like God is infinite. His attributes, His ability to create and to bestow kindness and to give is also infinite. And then you have the attribute of restraint, of strength, which is the attribute of symptom of being able to contract, to conceal, to hide which is just as dramatic, even more dramatic. The fact that God is able to hide His energy, not only does the godly energy have to constantly be within us and creating us, but the godly energy must constantly be hidden and concealed, because if God would reveal Himself for one moment, we would cease to exist. And that ability to totally hide and conceal Himself, so much so that if you look at nature... Nature is like the ultimate veil, the ultimate concealment. You look at nature and it's a total cover-up, a complete cover-up. You have no idea that there's an author, there's a creator, there's a cause, totally disconnected, totally independent. We know that we're alive, we feel our energy, but we don't sense anything divine. We don't make the connection to the divine. So this ability to be able to hide and to conceal and to totally cover up and completely cover up is also, a st- is also a divine ability because it makes no sense. Just like the ability to reveal, to create is something that's infinite, it's beyond our grasp. The ability to totally hide and conceal and cover up, such a cover up, is also beyond our ability to understand because it's, it's like covering up something that's in broad daylight. It's so obvious that we're nothing but God, and we're nothing but godliness, and we're nothing but the creative and divine energy. And if the divine energy would cease to create us for one split second, we would cease to exist. So it's also so obvious, so when that reality is so obvious, how can godliness be totally hidden, totally concealed? Not only don't we feel like we're the light inside the sun, we don't, we don't even feel like the light outside of the sun. We, don't, we feel totally independent, totally disconnected. We feel natural. Our existence is, feels totally natural. Our egos feel totally natural. Our sense of self, our sense of I, feels totally natural. Although there's nothing natural about it. It's absurd. It makes no sense. But yet, it feels totally natural. So that ability is also something that's infinite, it's beyond our grasp. And these two components are the key ingredients to existence. The sun, as well as the shield. If all you had was the light of the sun, it would be too intense. You couldn't receive it. So you have to conceal, you have to conceal the light of the sun. So too, if God's divine creative energy was revealed, we would cease to exist, we would be totally nullified. But so God is the sun as well as the shield. He's constantly within us, and He's totally hidden from us at the same time. If He were to remove Himself from us, we would cease to exist. And if He would reveal Himself to us, we would cease to exist. So God is the sun as well as the shield. And therefore, for God, it's, there's no concealment. Because, like it says in the Code of Jewish Law, 
you don't have a yarmulke, you have to cover your head, right? If you have no yarmulke, you can't cover your head with your hand because you can't cover yourself. It's like the, the, uh, the grasshopper, it's clothed, it comes from, from itself, so it's not really a cover-up. Another person could put his hand on your head and that's, that's, a, that's a legitimate cover, a yarmulke, but you can't cover yourself. You can't. So it's like God hiding over himself. God is the sun and the shield. So for God, there is no concealment. That's why the prophet says that darkness doesn't, there's no hiding, there's no concealment for God. That's where we left off. The question someone asked last week, he quoted, he said that Mashiach will come, God will remove the screen. And the sun will, will emerge without the screen. And it will heal the righteous and it will destroy the wicked. So the question was, then how will the world exist once Mashiach comes? If God reveals, removes the screen, and He reveals the sun, then there could be no existence. So how will the world, the world should be totally nullified once Mashiach comes? As if, as if it never, right? No independent existence. No, not only no independent existence. When the sun is revealed, it's not even a, a, a dependent existence. Because we're like the, the light, with, we're like the light that's within the sun. The divine energy is within us. If you remove the screen, then we are like the light that's within the sun. We are contained within the divine energy. If we're contained within the divine energy, we're non-entity. We're non-existent. We'll be completely nullified. So how will the world continue to exist after Mashiach comes? Also, which leads us to a very troubling question, is that what we're saying in essence is that the world is really an illusion. Because from God's point of view, we are like the light that's within the sun. Since the divine energy must constantly create us, and if the divine energy would cease to create us, we would cease to exist, like we never existed. So our whole being and whole essence is nothing other than the divine creative energy. So from God's point of view, we really don't exist. So is the world an illusion? Is it a screen that just that just doesn't allow us to see? Is it a veil that just covers up in the light, doesn't allow us to see the truth? But the truth is that we simply don't exist. <laughs> and if that's the case, what's the whole point of Torah and mitzvot? What difference do we make? What is the whole point of Torah and mitzvah? The whole point of a mitzvah is that you take a physical object and by doing a mitzvah, you make it holy. That is the whole point of mitzvah. A Jew was empowered at Mount Sinai to take a physical object which before the Jew does the mitzvah with it is just a physical, mundane, ordinary object has no sanctity to it, has no holiness. When you put on tefillin, when a bar mitzvah boy puts on tefillin with that piece of leather hide, it becomes holy, it becomes a holy object forever and ever. When you write a Torah scroll, the Torah scroll becomes a holy object, imbued with sanctity. When you do a mitzvah, you physically transform. A temple, a synagogue becomes holy. The physical building becomes holy. You have to treat it with sanctity and with respect. So is this transformation real? Or is it just an illusion? 
Because if, if in essence everything is godly, because the truth is that the divine energy is constantly creating every single thing that exists. Therefore, in essence, everything is truly godly. Its substance is godly. Just because we don't see it, it doesn't change the reality. From God's point of view, from the real point of view, it's really godly. Just God has this infinite ability to, to conceal, so much so that we have blinders, and there's a veil, and we don't see. But the truth is, the reality is that the substance of everything is really godliness. So if the substance of everything is really godliness, then it's godly even before we do a mitzvah, even before we perform a mitzvah, even before we make a choice, the wise choice to do a mitzvah, even before we overcome temptation and we overcome opposition and we, over, and we pass tests and we overcome difficulties, even before all of that, the world and the object is essentially holy and essentially godly. So there hasn't been a real transformation. Which leads us to another question. What about a tzaddik? Take the ultimate tzaddik, Moshe, who God spoke face to face. And unlike all other prophets, when God spoke to them, they went into a trance and they fell asleep. And Moshe spoke to God like you and I are speaking now. His body was a vehicle for God. God spoke through his throat. His body was a vehicle for God. So for him, there was no concealment. So for Moshe, there was no concealment. What is the point of Torah mitzvot for Moshe? If the world doesn't exist for Moshe, there's no illusion. And there's no concealment. And godliness is transparent. Then everything is godly. Before you do a mitzvah, what's the point of Torah mitzvot? And the other question is that this whole segment started out with the explanation of the Baal Shem Tov, based on the Medrash that the word of Hashem is constantly creating everything that exists. Everything that exists has a Hebrew word. It's made up of Hebrew letters. And the letters and the words bring everything into existence. That's the divine energy that brings everything into existence. But the question is, we just said that it's God's chesed, it's God's infinite creative ability that creates us. The concealment is the shield that hides the light and therefore enables us to exist. If there were no shield, we would be nullified. We wouldn't sense our existence. All that we would sense is the creative energy. Now the creative energy is a reflection of God. Just like God is infinite, the creative energy is also infinite. God is one, the creative energy is also one. Now how is it possible that there are so many words and letters, so many words, every object in this world has its own word, its own divine energy that's creating it? That there's a multiplicity of energies, a multiplicity of words. As a matter of fact, each object has many letters because a word is made up of many letters. So as many objects as you have in the universe... You have many more letters 
And each letter represents a different divine energy, and a word is a different combination of the divine energies that create this unique object. So how is it possible that the divine energy is multiplicit, is fragmented, is divided? God is one, his light is one, he is infinite, his light is infinite, his creative ability is infinite. And where do you get all these differentiations? In other words, how do you... How is it possible that this divine energy is able to create a multiplicity of objects, of beings? Where did this come from? The analogy of the sun and the shield is not an adequate analogy. Because the shield doesn't create anything. The shield is just a cover-up. What gives off light? What gives off heat? It's the sun. The light of the sun. So if the creative energy, the analogy of the creative energy, the chesed, God's kindness, God's greatness is the light of the sun, and the light of the sun reflects the sun. And God's name, Elohim, is only a cover-up, is God's ability to contract himself and to hide. So the question is, where did this whole multiplicity come from? How is it possible that there's so many different letters and so many different sources? God is one. God is indivisible. How is it possible that every creature has its own unique divine energy? There's a unique Hebrew letter and word for stone. There's a unique Hebrew word for ox, a unique Hebrew word for angel, a unique Hebrew word for heaven, a unique Hebrew word for trees, for people. How is it possible that in the divine you should have a multiplicity? There's only one God. And how do you have so many, such a diversity of divine energy? Didn't you say that the Sephirot acts as like a prism? And so it takes the light and it divides it up? Is that, is that okay. kind of the answer? Yes. That's your leading into what he's now going to explain in the parentheses. This is a long parenthesis that concludes chapter 4 and continues throughout the whole chapter 5. And it addresses this and many other questions. And he's coming to clarify that the tzimtzum is not just a shield, it's not just a cover-up. The better analogy for the tzimtzum is that the tzimtzum is a keli, is a vessel. The light, it's like a light, it's contained in a vessel. Meaning that just like a vessel, a vessel is not just a concealment, a vessel is an entity. The light shines through the prism, through glass. Light is pure, simple, undifferentiated, has no color. But when the light goes through the prism, what do you see? A yellow light, a red light, depending on the glass. So the glass is an entity that actually changes the light. It doesn't change the light per se. The light retains its, its pristine quality but it changes the effect of the light. What you see suddenly from one light, you see suddenly yellow, red, purple, green, all different colors. All the colors of the spectrum. Because of the vessel. Whereas the vessel has the ability to change the light, to change the effect of the light. That suddenly the same light, you're seeing a yellow light, you're seeing a red light, you're seeing a blue light. So the light is one. It's one light. It's the same light. But the effect of the light is differentiated through the prism, through the 
vessel through the glass, it differentiates the light, and the light is you get many, many different different colors. So he's explaining that when he said in the beginning that God creates the world through letters, through words, the letters and the words are like a vessel. A vessel that not only conceals the light, but it actually reveals the light and reveals it in a way that it contains the light and it reveals it in a way that you're able, it's able to communicate the light, into to break it down and to communicate it in a way that it could reach even a multiple world, even a world of multiplicity. It has the ability to take the light and to bring it down even, even into a multiple world. So, in other words, letters and words perform a very special function within us. Not only do letters reveal and convey our emotions, our feelings by concealing our real emotion and our real understanding. Because you can't really communicate the raw essence of your experience. You can't put into words the raw essence of your experience. You don't love in French or in Russian. You don't love in words. words experience transcends words. You can't communicate even the essence of your mind and this is reflected in Jewish law. Jewish law states that a Jewish beddin, the Jewish courts, who are judging a capital crime and are deciding on a capital punishment, are not allowed to meet on Friday. Why? Because you have to, if you are going to find the person guilty, you can't find the person guilty on the same day that you start the court case. You can't find the person guilty on the same day that you start the court case. You must deliberate at least one day. Sleep on it at least one night. You can't be hasty. To find the person not guilty, that you can do the same day. But if you're going to find the person guilty, you have to give yourself time. You have to let it sink in and settle and chew it over and be 100% certain that the person is truly guilty. So you can't do it Friday. Why? Why not? Because if you find, you can't, you can't uh, punish, capital punishment on Shabbos. It doesn't desecrate, you're not, not allowed to desecrate Shabbos even to mete out a capital punishment. You can't do it Saturday night because the judgment has to be in the day. The punishment has to be during the day. So the Talmud asks, so why don't they start deliberation on Friday and continue on Sunday? You have to wait an extra day, you'll wait an extra two days. And like we have in the courts here, it all originates from the Jewish court, they would have a scribe. The scribe would write down every argument of every judge and every thought, so someday they can review the record and continue where they left off on Friday. And Thomas says, no, that's not an option. Why? Because you can't write down what you're really thinking, what you're really feeling. Words do not capture. You can see the words on Sunday... But you're going to forget your inner reasoning. You're going to forget what you were really thinking deep down inside. And yes, you see the logic and you see the reason, 
But words cannot capture the raw experience, your real thoughts. Can't. So words are able to reveal, communicate, to reveal to someone else what's going on inside of you, what you're feeling, what you're thinking. You're able to share your thinking, share your thoughts, share your emotions. But it's only by hiding your emotions and hiding your raw experience and hiding your, your raw intellect. And what you're communicating is really a very superficial part of your comprehension, a very superficial part of your emotion. But letters and words are not just a way of concealing the light, conveying the light by concealing the light. Letters and words add a whole new dimension. Letters and words are actually an entity, a dynamic entity. Communication adds something to the whole picture. Communication is not just concealing the light, concealing your emotion, concealing your, your, your comprehension, and revealing, conveying, expressing and communicating your emotion to others. and your Communication adds something totally new to the whole picture. That's why communication is so powerful. The Talmud said, I've learned a lot from my teachers, I've learned more from my colleagues, but I've learned the most from my students. When the teacher was forced to communicate, it amplified for himself. It amplified the concept. Something novel happened. Seemingly, words and letters are just a vehicle, just a vessel. Whatever you put in, it just, it just conveys. It's a transportation. Yeah, you need a vehicle to get from here to there. That's what letters are. Letters are a transportation, a vehicle to reveal what's going on in your heart. No one knows what's going on in your heart. So by speaking, you're able to communicate and to convey, and to express what's going on in your heart. When something is going on in your head, in your mind, and you understand something, and you understand it well, you understand it clearly, the words and the letters are merely a vehicle to convey, and transportation of revealing, and this concept, and revealing it, and expressing it to others. So seemingly, it's only a vehicle, it's only a vessel. It doesn't add anything. But the truth is, it's not so. When you communicate, it adds tremendously to the whole mix. And that's why we find the Torah calls a person a communicator. It's interesting. What is the Western definition of man? You look in the dictionary, which is a Western invention. What is Aristotle's definition of man? A rational animal. We are the only ones who can rational, who can think, who can imagine to think logically. And that is what distinguishes us from animals. We have a brain. We can think, we can imagine, we can ask why. How does the Torah define man? What is the name for man? And remember, everything is in the name, in the Hebrew name. What is the Hebrew name for man? Not sikhli, which would mean rational. Medaber. Medaber, we speak. Which is also unique to man, that we're able to speak. Animals can speak. But seemingly, that's the first distinction between man 
and animals. A higher distinction would be our ability to rationalize and to com- comprehend. So why doesn't the Torah refer to man's unique ability to imagine and to ask why and to question and to think logically? Why does Torah choose our ability to speak? And animals can speak. There's the parrot. What is it? What is, what's the Torah referring to? And what the Torah is referring to, not just the ability to speak. The Torah is talking about communication. We are a creature of communication. Speaking is not just about speaking. Speaking is about communicating. It's about communicating with someone outside of yourself. And it's only when someone receives what you have to say, when you're able to bounce off yourself and someone else, and you're able to reflect what's going on inside of you and someone else, that what's going on inside of you becomes amplified a thousandfold. That's what the Torah means by Medaber. This deep need that we have to communicate. We have an urge and a need to communicate. It's not enough. We can't sit alone, isolated. Why can't a musician sit at home and play music for the rest of his life? Enjoy his talent, enjoy his musical inclination. Why does he have this burning urge and this burning need to play for an audience? And the greater the musician, the more self-sufficient the musician is, the more he needs an audience. The more brilliant the teacher, and the more independent the teacher is, he needs no one. He just needs quiet, peace and quiet to sit and think and to reflect and... That teacher needs students. That teacher needs to reach more people. That teacher needs to write a book and needs people reading the book and he needs that feedback. He needs to balance himself off others. Why does the teacher need students? Why does the artist need an audience? Why does the musician need an audience? This comes from a very deep place inside of us. The urge and the need to communicate. So communication, words, although they appear to be inert, dead, they're just a vehicle, they're just a vessel, they just transport from one place to another. They have nothing on their own. They have no character. They have no personality. Words just receive whatever you put inside the vehicle. Whatever you pack the vehicle, that's what the vehicle moves. You have an emotion, let me communicate that emotion. You have love, I'll communicate that feeling of love. You have hate, I'll communicate that feeling of love. You have an idea, I'll communicate. You have excitement. Whatever you have, words just receive. Words of no personality, words of no character. Words are dead, inert. They're just a vehicle, a vessel. They limit, they confine, they conceal, they receive it, and they move it on. They communicate it and express it to others. And seemingly it's very superficial. What are you communicating? Something very superficial. You can't communicate the raw experience. You can't communicate the raw understanding. As the Talmud said, that words only capture the external. But nevertheless, we find that when you put words into the mix, when you put communication into the mix, there's a new dynamic. There's a new end. Something new happens. Something that's amplified. That amplifies whatever's going on inside of you a thousandfold. That's what we find the nature of words, of communication. The nature of speaking is 
that when a person speaks and a person communicates, suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, your mind opens up. New ideas pop into your head. Something that you could never accomplish if you sat for a thousand years, thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking, and you never communicated. You were Robinson Crusoe, and you locked yourself up, and you never communicated. Even though you have a rich inner life, you have a mind that's working, and you have talent, and you... But it's only when you start communicating that whatever is going on inside of you, suddenly it's like a fountain opens up out of nowhere. And on a scale that's way beyond anything you can accomplish on your own, and you experience something totally new. So the keli, which means the ability to receive, that receives the light and receives the energy, when something is received, it touches you very deeply, much deeper than when you're just expressing yourself. It's when you teach and someone actually receives it and you get feedback. It's much more rewarding. A person who wants to do kindness, who loves to do kindness and has pleasure in doing kindness, that pleasure cannot compare to the experience when the poor person actually receives the kindness. When the person has actually received the kindness and benefited from your kindness, that gives you the deepest pleasure. When there's a reception, when there's feedback, when there's communication. And that's the power of communication. You know, we lived in the communication age. Now we're moving on to the information age. But from the 50s, basically, we lived in the communication age. And when there's communication, Society, the economy expanded a thousandfold. It, it's, it's not. It, it's a growth that's just way beyond. It's not a measured growth. It's an explosive growth. Once you add communication to the mix, it takes you to a whole different level. So he's clarifying that when we compare, we say that the light. The creative energy, God's kindness with which it creates the world, which is a reflection of God, just like God is infinite and His ability to create is also infinite. And then you have the shield, the prism, the glass through which the light shines, which differentiates the light and gives us all the letters and the words that create this multiple, multiple universe. It's not just a cover-up, like a shield of the sun that just covers up in the sun. But it actually adds something dynamic. It adds something to the mix. And the analogy is, imagine the teacher, Einstein, who has no relation to his students. They're not relative to Einstein. He can't communicate to them because his thinking and his mind is just in a different, different universe. You don't have the capacity to receive what Einstein is teaching. So how is Einstein going to communicate with you? So firstly, Einstein must make a quantum leap. He has totally, totally, totally forget about his own frame of reference. And he has to get into your mind. And then he has to take an idea, a very simple idea, 
And even that's too complex for you. He has to take that idea and come up with a metaphor, an analogy. And even that's too complex for you. He has to further take that idea and reduce it and reduce it until Einstein tells you a story, tells you something that makes sense to you, and you're very happy, you learned something. Einstein is communicating with you. Now, the goal is, Einstein obviously wants to communicate, wants to teach you what's going on in his mind. If he's just going to teach you something else, then he's not teaching. He's not communicating what's going on in his mind. But how is Einstein going to communicate what's going on in his mind? Your whole frame of reference is different. You live, you live in two different universes. You have no clue what he's talking about. If Einstein would just speak to you on his level, he would crush you. He would destroy your mind because you just, you'll be totally confused and confounded. You wouldn't know what he's talking about. It's way over your head. If you give a student too much, if you teach a student too much, if you see the student something that's way over their head that they don't have the capacity to receive or to absorb, you're just going to destroy that student. If you put an 8th grader into ninth grade, you ruin him for life. If you skip a, a child who's not ready to be skipped, you'll, you'll destroy him. Because he, it, it's way beyond his capacity. You give him too much and he can't handle it and his mind will be confused forever because he'll, he won't... He didn't learn how to think straight. He, he's, he's trying to grasp something that's way beyond... He's trying to chew more, more, more than he can bite. And it, just, it will just destroy you. So Einstein can't communicate to you in his life. So he has to totally abandon his frame of reference. And then he has to give you just a glimpse of what he's thinking. And even that is too general. Then he has to break it down. And then he has to find analogies and metaphors and illustrations until he's able to speak your language. Now, there are two interesting things in this analogy. Firstly, for Einstein, there is no concealment. There's no contraction. Because when he's telling you a parable that you can relate to and you can understand, Einstein sees in this parable his original thought. There's no concealment. He doesn't see a parable. He just sees the whole thought is within this parable. Because this parable, it's condensed. The whole infinite thought that he has is condensed in this parable. And this parable contains the seeds for Einstein's original thought. If the student will spend the next 40 years, the Talmud says it takes a student 40 years of breaking his head, of learning what the teacher taught him, a genuine teacher like Einstein, and finally figuring out and working his way back up from the bottom up, is able to work his way back to Einstein's original understanding. By thinking deeply into the metaphor and the sequence and the order, he's able to realize how everything is pointing to something, something greater and greater until he's able to work his way back up to the original, original thought. Until the student mind, the student's mind reaches the same place that Einstein's mind is at. So the question is, why couldn't the teacher just teach it straight out? Why did the teacher have to go through this torturous process and then you have to wait 40 years, an extreme strenuous effort for the student's mind to meet and to merge with Einstein's mind? Why couldn't Einstein just tell them straight out, as is? 
without any concealments, without any veils, without any metaphors, without any contractions, without any condensing. And the answer is, because he would have destroyed the student. The student would not be able to receive it. But by Einstein contracting himself and hiding and concealing, the student mind is able to learn in a productive way. And the student, without being destroyed, the student is able to work his way back. And his mind is able to merge with Einstein's mind. The Torah tells us very clearly that this world that we live in, this finite material world, this world of nature, which is confined by nature and limited, is not an illusion. But the reason it's not an illusion is because this world is really a metaphor for God, for godliness. Everything in the world is a metaphor for godliness. For God, there is no concealment. When God looks at this world, there's no concealment. God's infinite light, God's infinite self, godliness is manifest. There's no hiding before God, there's no darkness, there's no concealment. It's all clear and manifest. However, for us, we are very much limited by the world that we live in, by the world of nature. But within the world of nature, within the world that we live in, it contains all the seeds of the infinite. Because everything is truly godly. And it's really up to us. If we take the world at face value, then the world is the ultimate illusion. If we take the world at face value, that it's all about ego, and it's all about I, and I am independent, and I create my own success, and my brawns and my brains and my smarts make me successful, then if you take the world at face value, it's truly an an illusion. It's truly a lie, one big lie. It's false. In this illusion, in this dream that we call life, you can, you can be a senator and you can be a billionaire and you can be a mover and a shaker, but it's taking it at face value. Then it's an illusion. However, it's up to us. It's up to the Jew to look at this world and to realize that everything is truly godly. When you overcome a difficulty in your life and you overcome, you realize that life is a test and you're able to stop working on Shabbos and you're able to work in a kosher and an honest way and you're able to find the time to study Torah because you remember where where does your success come from. It's all godly. Then you reveal the godliness within the world without destroying the world then within the framework of the world, you're able to reveal Godliness, which is the essence of the Jewish mission, and the essence of the point that he's talking about right here, of Torah and Mitzvah. All other religions, all other mysticisms, it's one or the other. Either you become mystical, and then you just erase the world, because the world is just one big illusion. You become a monk, you become a nun, you become godly and holy, and the material world is all full of sin, maya, and just ceases to exist for you. Or, you just totally embrace the material world and the physical world, and you totally exclude the spiritual world. Or, you compartmentalize the two. On Shabbos I'll be holy, but then I go into the real world, and the twain shall not meet. 
The whole essence of Torah and mitzvot, the whole essence of Judaism, is that God wanted a world. He wanted a world with a structure, a finite, limited world. And He doesn't want us to destroy the world. He wants the world to remain intact. The ultimate goal is when Mashiach will come, God will not nullify the world. The world will not be destroyed. Ramanity says the world will continue and be a very natural world. There will be newspapers and there will be radio and there will be television and there will be science. And be... The world will not be destroyed. But we will reveal within this framework, within this finite, limited framework, we will reveal that in truth it's all godly. And it's up to us. So, when you say that God created the world with letters, with words, letters and words come from a very special place within your soul. Letters and words come from a very deep place within you. It's that need within you to communicate to others. That ability that we have to step outside of ourselves. That unique ability that makes us unique, which is why the Torah refers to man as communicator. That's the name, the designated name. That's the name with which God created us. Medaber. It's our unique ability to see ourselves as outsiders, as someone else sees us. It's God's ability, so to speak, to see Himself from an outsider's point of view. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is infinite. His light is infinite. But God also has the ability of tzimtzum, the ability, God's speech, God has the ability of a keli, to limit, to communicate. God has the ability, so to speak, to step outside of himself, to create something that's outside of himself, and to see himself as an outsider sees. So it's creative, it's dynamic, it's not just a shield, a cover-up on the energy. It brings something new into the mix. The vessel, the words, the letters, the tzimtzum, the keli, Bring something totally dynamic, something totally new. It's your ability to step outside of yourself. Which is why communication is so powerful. Because no matter what's going on inside of you, it's limited. It's only when you have the ability to step outside of yourself and to see how the customer sees you, that's when your business takes off. As long as you're stuck within yourself and limited within yourself, you're finite. It's only when you're able to stretch you're able to totally get out of yourself, jump out of your skin, which is a seemingly impossibility because ultimately everything is self-expression. But the ability to forget about yourself and to see yourself as someone else sees you, get into someone else's mind and communicate your idea and communicate it to someone else, someone outside of you, that's you're touching something very profound something very dynamic. You're bringing something new into the mix. So Torah and mitzvot create something new, something dynamic. It's not that the whole thing is just an illusion and there's a shield and we don't see it, but God sees it and really we don't exist. The shield is God's communication, is God's letters, God's words. That's a vessel. That's the prism through which the light shines, which creates a whole new dynamic which creates an entity, so to speak, that's separate from God and outside of God, that's finite and that's limited. And yet, even we, earning a living, are able to earn a living and see godliness in our lives and act in a godly way. Engage in the world. Not nullify the world, 
Engage in the world. Play by the rules. Nature is nature. You have to work in a natural way, operate in a natural way. You have to go to the doctor, you have to speak to the financial consultant. But at the same time, find time to learn Torah. Find time to come to Minyan in the morning. Find time to give tzedakah. Do business in an honest way, even though all your competition are ruthless and ganavim. It's the ability to find, to sense, to find godliness within the world. Then you're creating something new. You're taking something secular, something mundane, and you do a mitzvah with it. You transform it into something sacred, into something godly, into something holy. So he's clarifying that the tzimtzum, the tzimtzum is the ability, just like the analogy with Einstein, that Einstein has the ability to communicate to someone who's totally in a different universe than him. And without destroying that student, he's able to elevate that student and to reveal within that student, he's able to find within that student, he's able to find himself. Because that student is able to work his way back up, up to Einstein's mind, to Einstein's understanding. And that's the power of communication. And that's the ultimate expression of godliness. God created the world in which he is hidden, in which he's concealed. A world that feels like something other than God. That's separate from God. It's independent from God. We look at God as, some, as, a, as a stranger looks at us, as an outsider is looking at someone else. It's other than us. God is something other than us. And we're looking to God, and we're trying to relate to God. But by looking as, to God as something other than us, and by us being able to discover God, and all roads lead to Jerusalem, that we're, we're able on our own to come to the realization of the reality of God and find God in our daily lives, that we do business in a godly way, and we realize that everything is godly, then we're able to reveal the true essence of God, the truth of God. That God is so true that He doesn't have to overwhelm us with His presence. But even when He's totally hidden and concealed, Inevitably, we'll all find our way back to that truth. Because that truth permeates everything. God is not only God in heaven, but God also is God on earth. There is no difference. Even in the world, it's material, materialistic, and natural. Even in this world, the truth is everything is God. And that is the ultimate expression of God's truth. Just like the ultimate expression of our truth is, is when we communicate. It's only when we communicate that we feel whole and we feel complete. The ability to step outside of ourselves and to communicate ourselves to others when we're reflected back in a relationship, when we're reflected back from someone outside of us. That's when we reach our ultimate creativity. That's what marriage is. Marriage is when you forget about yourself and you see your reflection in someone else. Someone else reflects you back. That's when you're able to create that's when you achieve the greatest dynamic. That's when you feel whole and complete. Otherwise, you're just half. And half really means nothing. So tzimtzum is very active. It's very dynamic. It's not just a concealment. It's not just a curtain. It's not just a shield. The tzimtzum is actually a vessel that contains the light, transports the light, reveals the light, communicates the light, differentiates the light. But within that differentiation... It actually creates an entity, just like the vessel is an entity, the prism, the glass is an entity separate from the light. 
It creates an entity that's also separate. We communicate to someone outside of ourselves. When we say that God communicates, God creates something that's outside of him. God creates an entity that feels that it's outside of him. So that, that entity, that separation is real. That perspective is real. We're not an illusion. And therefore, what we do with our lives, our choices, the Torah and mitzvot are very real. It's real. Something very real is happening. When we're able to communicate, when the student is able to reach the level of Einstein, within his mind is able to uncover the teachings that he was taught and is able to uncover and reach the mind of Einstein within his mind and to discover the Einstein within him. When you're able to communicate and you're able to find yourself in someone else, you're creating something new, something very dynamic, something very vibrant, something that transforms and changes everything. So Torah mitzvah is real. What we do in this world is real because we are the communication of God. We are the language of God. And when God finds Himself within us, and we find God within us, within our daily lives, within the material, the natural order of things, when you find God in Park Avenue, you find God in the world of business, amongst this, the skyscrapers of Manhattan, going about your daily natural business, you're able to find godliness, and sense godliness. You create something new. God is communicating. Where is language? God is revealing his, his truth, His ultimate, absolute essence is revealed. It's Einstein's ability to, be, to communicate with a student that's so distant from him. And without destroying the student, that's where you see Einstein's ultimate greatness. So where is the essence of God revealed? In the tzimtzum. But it's not a tzimtzum that hides, that conceals. Like a shield that just hides and conceals. It's a symptom that conveys, that condenses, like an analogy of Einstein. He condenses his infinite wisdom into this analogy. God condenses his infinite self, his godly self, in the material world, in our world. And our mission is to uncover it, to reveal it. And when we do, and we withstand the temptations, and we withstand the tests, we're able to reveal godliness in this world. Starting with the very first Jew, Abraham. You know that Abraham was thrown into the fire. Abraham was tested. He was thrown into the fire. And what happened? He walked around for three days in the fire. The fire did not burn him. He experienced it as a as walk, uh, was a walk in, the, in, in botanical gardens. The wood that he kept on throwing into the fire to add flames to the fire. It was so hot. Anyone standing within anywhere close to the fire got burned up any wood they threw into the fire just turned into a tree it was like a garden Abraham was enjoying his walk in the botanical garden in the middle of the fire so what's going on here you have a fire by nature fire burns fire consumes and here there was a fire and it didn't consume why? because Abraham was tested this is one of the tests the first test of Abraham Abraham was tested and he passed the test with flying colors he was undeterred. He remained true to his principles, to godliness. When he remained true to his principles, he revealed that nature is nothing more than godliness, than the divine energy. And from the divine energy's point of view, who says fire has to burn? It's only from the, from the Elohim, the name Elohim, the letters, the words, 
the vessel, the vehicle, the prism that creates this differentiated world that fire burns and water, water has the qualities of water. But from the undifferentiated infinite light with which God creates the world, there is no difference. So who says fire has to burn? It could be a fire and it doesn't burn. The burning bush was not consumed. It burned and it didn't burn at the same time. When a Jew reveals in his life, reveals that the world is godly, then you discover that you have a blessing in your life. You have a blessing that's beyond nature, within nature. Suddenly everything in nature works out. The more you strengthen your relationship with God, the more you find time to study Torah and to do mitzvah. Miraculously, everything in your life suddenly becomes miraculous. Within nature. Not, not the split the sea opens up, but suddenly you're successful in your work, you're successful in your health, you're successful in everything that you do. Miraculously, but within nature. Because you reveal in your life that nature is nothing other than godliness. Nature, the vessel, the vehicle, the letters, the language are just a means to communicate your essence. It's not a concealment. It's actually a revelation of your essence. That's what Dr. Rebbe is trying to say here. Letters are a revelation. But not just a revelation of your external self, your external emotions, or a revelation of your external comprehension, understanding. It's actually communication is a revelation of your essence. The need to communicate. The urge to communicate. The ability to communicate. And within this communication lies the seeds of, of your essence. The ability to step outside of yourself, to find yourself in someone else. That's why when you do communicate, whatever is going on inside of you is amplified a thousandfold. It creates a new dynamic. It changes you. It transforms you. Because it reveals your essence. And when your essence is revealed, everything works on a different level. It's a thousand times more powerful. Not one, not relatively it's more powerful. It's, it's a whole different world. So when a Jew lives in this world, God, we are the language of God. We are God's communication. And God, His light, which is God's creative ability to create something from nothing. But when God's light goes through the prism and is differentiated and creates this physical, natural world that we live in, it's not that God's light is concealed and hidden. On the contrary, the prism, the vessel, the words, the language reveal God's essence. It's the vehicle that brings God's essence into this world through us. When we receive the word, when we receive the communication, when a Jew opens his eyes and realizes that within this world is the, is the seeds for the infinite, because everything in the world is just a metaphor for godliness. And everything is divine providence. And God is with us every step of the way. And you open your eyes. When we receive the word, we reveal God's essence. So that the symptom is not concealing, it's actually revealing. It's dynamic, it's active, it's actually revealing. It's a vehicle to reveal, to bring God's infinite light into the natural setting, our tiny, puny, little, tiny, the speck of dust that's floating in this, in this vast universe. But that's what God wanted. God wanted His infinite self to be revealed in this speck of dust. Because when we are able to look at God as an outsider and see, see God, because basically we are God's ability to see Himself as someone else would see Him, so to speak. <laughs> and that's something novel. That's something new. 
When you have the ability to see yourself like someone else sees you, it's a revelation. Because most of us don't have that ability. Human nature is you can't see yourself honestly and objectively. You can't see yourself as someone else sees you honestly and objectively. Because everything that we do is just an expression of self. The ability, the ability that we have to step outside of ourselves in business, the greatest key to success in business is listening to the customer. So symptom is not the ability of self-expression. Symptom is the ability of self-forgetfulness, forgetting about yourself. And being able to step outside of yourself and to receive See how someone else would see it. Step into the mind of the customers. Forget about yourself. Step into someone else's mind. Step into your wife's mind. Step into your husband's mind. Step into someone else's mind. See yourself reflected in someone else. And this is the deepest urge and need that a human being has. The musician has to see his music, hear his music, reflected back from the audience. Otherwise he's not accomplished. He's not whole. It's not enough the music that's going on inside of him. It's nothing. In comparison to when he hears that applause, he hears his music being received, and then it amplifies whatever's going on inside of him a thousandfold. The teacher that has students, and he sees his ideas reflected back from the students. The author that has an audience, that people buy the book and receive the book and read the book, and he sees himself reflected back. His self-expression received and reflected back. This is the deepest need and urge within us. And that touches our essence much more than self-expression. So God's chesed, God's ability to create, which is God's infinite light, which is a reflection. Light is a reflection of the sun, so God's infinite light is a reflection of His infinite self, and God has the infinite capacity to create something from nothing, and that capacity is reflected in His light, His chesed, His kindness, His greatness. He's able to create something from nothing. That's God's self-expression. But the symptom is the vessel are the letters and the words that are created when the light is reflected through the vessel, through the prism, through the glass. And then you get all the different colors. That's God's ability of self, self-forgetfulness. To see himself through someone else's eyes. There's an outsider, a receiver, someone separate from him who's receiving. And that touches the essence of God. And that creates something totally new and dynamic. So this world is the world of action. This world is the world of change. This world is the most dynamic world of all. This world is the most vibrant world. It's only in this world, in the world of Torah and mitzvot. Torah and mitzvot were not given in heaven. There are no mitzvot in heaven. It's only in this physical world that we, through our choices, through our wisdom, through our choices, through our overcoming difficulties, through our standing the test, just like Abraham passed through the tests, inner and outer difficulties, and by sticking to our truth and to, re- to sticking with godliness and re- recognizing godliness in our daily life, as we go about our daily natural lives and business, not only on Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, but as we go about our daily business, we change the world. Not only change the world, we change, we are the ultimate expression of God's essence. We reveal God's essence. Something real happens. Something dynamic is happening. We are transforming the material into something godly. A mitzvah accomplishes something genuine, something very real. It's not just an illusion. And even someone like Moses, Moshe, even for him, 
something very dynamic is accomplished and happens when he does Torah Mitzvah. There's a change. There's a transformation. Because Moshe, as great as he is, and even though God spoke through his, through his voice, and his body was a vehicle for God, and there was no hiding from Moshe, even compared to Moshe, he'll explain, there is a separation between him and God. He's not just a product of God's self-expression. He's also a product of God's hiding himself, of God's self-forgetfulness. And therefore, when Moshe receives God, it also creates something new and dynamic. Create something new. Movement, change. Something stirs, something changes, something shifts. So yes, words, there are two types of words. There are words that conceal, which describe most of the words in our life. We talk and talk and talk and talk to ourselves and to others. Very little stirring of the soul. Very little illumination. A lot of words and no light. The more we talk, the, the more alienated we feel. Darker the darker it gets. We live in the most talkative society in history and the least illuminated, the most darkest society in history. So talking is concealment. Like we said earlier, talking is a concealment. It's a vessel that hides, conceals. But within those words, you also have the seeds of the deepest stirrings. When you're able to take words, and instead of words, that are empty, that are superficial, that cover up. You have words that zing your soul, they, they, they ring, they resonate. Words that, that stir your soul. Words that capture something real. Something that defies words. That's a transformation. You're changing. You're not escaping the world of words. Eastern mysticism is escapism. You're escaping the whole framework of words you meditate into silence, into a world with no words. That's not Judaism. That's not Torah. That's not mitzvah. Judaism is don't escape the world of words. Transform the world of words. Take words, but these words should be searing words. These words should be words that touch your essence. They're words that communicate, that reveal your essence. That are dynamic, that are vibrant. Take words and totally transform it, that it becomes something totally different. Take the world, live in the world, have your feet firmly planted in the world, don't run off to somewhere to Jerusalem and escape the world, live in this world, be part of the world, but transform it into a godly experience. Do business, but what's the bottom line? There's nothing but God. That, that's, that's entirely different. That's real. That's a real change. You've taken something material, words, which are material, which are external, and you've transformed it into something essential, to something core. Because then the words convey and reveal the essence. You've brought the essence into the world of words. You're not limited. You show that you're not limited. When you can only express yourself with light, you can only express yourself, then you're limited. When you're able to express yourself, even when you absent yourself, when you're able to discover yourself, even when you absent yourself, and you're able to communicate, and you're able to find yourself reflected back, that's truly unlimited. When God is only revealed, when He's revealed, then you don't know that God is truly unlimited. 
When is God truly, God's essence truly revealed? When He can even reveal Himself even in the finite. When you can discover God even in the finite. When you could discover God even in your daily life and even in, even in the natural world without destroying the world. When Einstein could reveal himself in that simple student without destroying that student. That's when you know that what Einstein knows is genuine. That he's able to communicate that and find that, discover it even in the simple student's mind. So this limitation is not just a shield that hides. It's actually the ultimate revelation of God's essence. That God is truly being unlimited. That God is able to communicate and is able to see himself as others see himself. And he's able to discover himself even in a world that's totally separate from him. In a world that appears totally the opposite and the antithesis of anything godly. A finite world, a limited world, a materialistic world, a tiny puny world. And yet without destroying the world, you're able to find godliness in that world. As you go about your daily life in a natural setting... That's when you discover and reveal the true essence of God. That God is truly limitless. He's so unlimited that He's not limited to being infinite. He's not limited to being unlimited. He could even express Himself even in the finite. As a matter of fact, the finite is a much deeper expression of His infinite self, of His essence. Because God is truth. God is essence. And therefore you find God everywhere. Even outside of God, so to speak. You'll also find God. Even when God creates language and words and creates an entity that appears to be separate from God, even there you end up finding God. Even when God creates a world which is natural, which is the antithesis of Godliness, Abraham was surrounded by idolaters and pagans. Even there Abraham was able to find God. When we live in the world that we live in, and yet you're able to find Godliness by studying Torah and coming to Minyan and putting on tefillin and learning and, and acting kind and doing business properly, kosher, you're able, you discover the truth, the essence of God. That God is so real that you find Him everywhere. Even in a place where He's absent. So to speak. Appears to be absent. When Einstein is able to find himself in the mind of the student, then you know that what Einstein knows is genuine. The idea is genuine. He's able to communicate. Even in a place that's totally divorced from it. So God's ability to totally like divorce himself, so to speak. God's ability to step outside of himself and to create something outside of himself, so to speak. That we look at God like a stranger looks at us. We're looking at God from the outside. And yet even we find God. That reveals the truth of God. So Tzimtzum is very active. It's very dynamic. It's a reality. The world that we live in is a reality. Our service of God is a reality. Our mitzvot is a reality. Our Torah that we learn is a reality. It's real. We're accomplishing something. We're revealing something. It's something very dynamic. It's not just hiding. Like hide and seek. God is just hiding. But really all it is is just, it's just a hiding. But if we were to see, then there's nothing really there. There is no reality. There's no entity. No, symptom brings something new into the whole mix. And therefore it creates a dynamic reality. And we accomplish something. And we change this reality. And we reveal godliness through our service. It's our choices. And our wisdom. And our resisting temptations and overcoming tests. That we actually reveal and bring godliness. Reveal godliness even in the finite world. We reveal the essence of God. This is a point that he had to clarify because if he just left off what we learned last week that God is the sun and God is the shield 
and it's just a concealment, a shield. A shield doesn't add anything. A shield is only concealment. So if symptom doesn't add anything, if symptom is just a concealment, then in reality it really is an illusion. Because from God's point of view, there is no concealment. God is the sun and the shield, and the truth is that from God's point of view, we don't exist. So he must clarify in this parenthesis that the symptom is not just a concealment. The symptom adds something. Just like the prism, the glass adds to the light that suddenly you see a red light and a yellow light, you see all the different colors. It adds something. Symptom actually adds something. It adds the ability to step outside of yourself, the ability to communicate. And it creates a new perspective, a new reality, a much deeper reality, a much more profound reality. It reveals God's infinite light, infinite essence in the physical world, in the setting of the physical world, specifically in the setting of the physical world. So it's only the symptom that's actually a vehicle that reveals God's infinite. So what we're doing in this world and our service of God and our Torah and our mitzvah and our personal struggles are very real. Are real to the essence of God. It really matters. It really makes a difference. We are living in the most dynamic, vibrant, most profound. We are the only part of the world that really changes, that creates a real change. We take a physical hide of an animal and we transform it into a sacred object. We reveal godliness in our daily lives. Every one of us was given a portion of this world that we have to sanctify, that we have to transform, we have to change. No one else can do it for us. When we do our job, hopefully God will give us a bigger portion so we can, can sanctify it even more. So he adds this, this whole, the end of chapter 4, and chapter 5, he puts in the parentheses, because although this is very Kabbalistic and very deep, very profound, and he speaks in like code words. But nevertheless, he must insert this, because without this clarification, we're going to walk away with a whole misconception of what symptom is, that the world is created through words, through letters, it's real, and yet God is one, and His light is one, and yet there are many letters. Every object in this world has many letters, many different divine energies. But that's created through the keli, through the vessel. The letters are the vessel and the effect that the vessel has, the prism, the glass has on the light. So the light remains simple, undifferentiated. But through, when the light passes through the letters and words, the letters define the light, shape the light, and give it a shape. So when the divine energy is contained within the Hebrew letters, the Hebrew letters define the divine energy and give it a shape, and, and communicate the divine energy into the multiplicity and multiple objects that exist in this universe. And, but that creates something new. It's an entity. It introduces a new dynamism, language, communication, stepping outside of yourself. Contraction is the ability to reveal, bring godliness, even into this setting, and to ultimately reveal God's essence. <laughs> is there a, a master plan? What will happen after? Because if that's the purpose, then yes. basically the whole process is, is a challenge and it's much more interesting in a way. Oh, then what happens at the end? Yeah. If this is the purpose, then this is much more interesting than get to the goal. <laughs> then what will happen? But the goal is, the goal is, 
just like in Einstein, that after 40 years of hard work, the student will ultimately discover Einstein inside his mind. Reach the same place without, without being destroyed. He will reach it and his mind will, will be able to absorb it. So the goal is that through our 3,800 years of sweat, of toil, of effort, of sacrifice, of infinite amount of tzedakah and kindness and hope and faith and mitzvot and Torah and joy and love, unconditional love for each other, etc. We have reached any moment, reached the infinite without the world being destroyed. We'll sense the infinite. Mashiach will come. The world will remain in a very natural state. But we'll sense within the world, we'll sense the infinite. We'll realize the world is not an illusion. But everything in the world is just a metaphor for something godly. So, but then, what happens then? No, but then, <laughs> then we'll learn a new concept. It'll be much higher. And so. Yes, there are many levels. Because don't forget, God will not destroy the world. The world will remain... So, there's a level of Mashiach. Then you have the level of resurrection. Then you have the level of millennium, the 7,000 year. So we know that there is a plan, but we're not really... We, we know what will happen. We know whatever it is, life will just begin. You know, you know what it's like. It's like the Rebbe once gave an analogy. He's discussing the difference between the Beni and the Tzaddik. He says, um, the question he asked was, why is it if God wants us to follow the Torah and the mitzvot, why did he make life so difficult? It's counterproductive. It's like he wants us to do the right thing and then he places obstacles in our, in our path. He puts, throws us left curves every step of the way. There's always some, something surprising, something that comes up that always throws us off Thwarts us. What's the point? I mean, God is, wants us to do Torah mitzvah. He should make it easy for us. And yet he makes it so difficult, almost impossible. What's the point? And the answer is, the Rebbe gave the analogy. He says, why is it when, when they wanted to send the rocket ship? You know, the, this was when they f- first sent up the first Apollo. And he says, everything in the world is divine providence. Everything is here to teach us a lesson. What's the lesson you can learn from, from the space, spaceship? He says, you know how much energy, how much fuel it takes to get the spaceship out of, out, into the, out of the atmosphere? Huge amounts. The size of the fuel tank is four times the size of the actual space capsule. So what's the point? You're trying to get out of this, this space. You're trying to get out to reach out of space. So what do you do? You add, you piggyback this huge monster load that only makes it even more difficult to lift off. Because now not only you have to schlep up have to schlep up the, the, they have to schlep up all this mass. So it seems counterproductive. But what's the answer? On the contrary, it's that fuel that pushes you out, out of the atmosphere. What happens once you reach space? It drops back to Earth because then you don't need it. And then you just glide in space, you go so much swifter. You don't need it anymore. So the Rebbe says this is the analogy of the Benini, the average Jew, 99.9% of us, and the Tzad. So the Benini. Why did God make life so difficult for us? Life is so confusing for us. Life is uh, filled with conflict. It's actually for our good. Because that's what boosts us. That's what gets our juices flowing. A good challenge. Something that keeps us on edge. It keeps us alive. If we wouldn't, we would just be complacent. We would be very satisfied. And we would never move in our life. In order to get us to move, God creates challenge and difficulty. And that really forces us to dig deep inside of us and forces us to really change something in our lives, to really propel us forward. So the challenge actually propels us forward. And the greater, the farther we need to go, the greater the challenge. 
The greater the potential we have, the greater the challenge. <coughs> However, once the tzaddik, he's already overcome the challenge, he's already reached, then it's not necessary, because just challenge for challenge's sake, it's not God is making our life miserable, he just wants to make life fun and interesting. It's there for a positive purpose. But once the tzaddik doesn't need it anymore, then it's gone. Then God removes the challenge and then the conflict and then the tzaddik grows much quicker than we can ever grow because he's, he's flying. And the same thing as Mashiach. Mashiach will all be like the level of the tzaddik. Today, life is a struggle. Till Mashiach comes, life is a struggle. There's darkness, there's confusion, there's concealment, there are obstacles, imaginary obstacles, real obstacles from within and from without. And every day brings something new, unpredictable, not only positive. So we need that struggle. But once Mashiach will come, we'll all be on the level of the tzaddik. Then life will begin. When Mashiach will come, we'll, we'll, the journey will continue, but without the negativity. Because we won't need the negativity to motivate us. Now we need, unfortunately, we need negativity to motivate us, to wake us up. When Mashiach will come, we'll motivate ourselves. We'll be self-motivated. You won't need any negativity. Mashiach will come, we'll grow and change each and every day. We'll go from good to even better, to even better, to even better. Now, unfortunately, unless there's a tragedy, unless something wakes us up, we go back to sleep. So we need something negative to, to challenge us and to stir us. But once we reach the level of Mashiach, life begins. You won't need anything negative to continue that journey. But because the journey started, began through challenge, through exile, through thousands of years of exile, that taste will always remain with us. So, you're nothing to worry about. That, that, that will continue to propel us. It's that original energy that propelled us out of space, and then we can continue going infinitely. You know, you reach the moon, and then you continue on to Mars, and you continue on the galaxy, and the next galaxy, and then today we're just discovering. I mean, we're, we're nothing. You, you can travel. It's endless. It's infinite. So, Mashiach will come. Life begins. We can't imagine what that's like now. But don't forget, all of, those, all of those, all that propelling forward is all based on the original fuel, which is our challenge today. So we create Mashiach through our effort and struggle in the darkness, especially in the deepest darkness, especially in the last moments of the darkness. It's our struggle that actually gives the ultimate push forward that will continue and propel us forever and ever and ever. If, if, if the negativity propels us and makes us go that much further then do we really need Mashiach anyway? Oh, no, so the, the negativity is not an end in itself, God forbid. The no, negativity is a means to an end. But the analogy of the rocket, once you're, once you're in space, you don't need it anymore. So then it becomes superfluous. Then, you, then, then Hashem removes it from us. What's the point? Hashem, it's not just, just to aggravate us, or to, inflict, to make life fun, to inflict pain on us. It's, it's there to wake us up, to stir us, to get us moving and to dig deep into it. But once we're already self-motivated, then it's not necessary. So then we can grow from good to even better, to even better, because it's infinite. So no matter how much you've accomplished, you can continue going and exploring and exploring new worlds and new realities forever and ever and ever. And, and, and there'll be dramatic levels. There'll be the first level of Mashiach. Hopefully it'll happen tonight. Then there'll be the level of Chiyat HaMesim, now. Then there'll be the resurrection. Then there'll be the millennium, which is almost around the corner. We're only 235 years away from the millennium, which is... Three things have to happen before that. I mean, two, two levels. We have to first have Mashiach, then we have the resurrection. Then comes the millennium. So, Mashiach is very late. There's hardly any time left. 
So you know for sure that he's coming any moment, any second, tonight. What? No, no, we're limited. The one thing you can't create is more time. It's true, once Mashiach comes, we... Uh, but, you know, when you're having fun, time flies very quickly, so... So it's not fear. The exile lasted for 2,000 years, 3,800 years. Mashiach will come for a day. That's not fear. Simply not fear. We suffered for so long. We, we, we exerted ourselves for thousands of years. And then Mashiach just comes for a day, a week, a month, a year, God forbid. It has to be commensurate to the pain, at least. Of course, it has to be a thousand times greater, 500 times greater, infinite times greater. So uh, Mashiach is way overdue. <laughs> Um, to be continued. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.